More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Interesting. Well, this, this is okay. a story. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah. Welcome back to Bedrock USA. We're your hosts. I'm Samantha Story. And I'm Kathleen Quillian. This is Chapter 2 of The School Board Queen a three-part miniseries about Bridget Ziegler, a conservative mom who's shaking up America's school boards. In our first chapter, we met the queen in person. We learned why she became a school board member. She wanted to make her local schools better for her kids, who'd one day attend them. But that goal changed. Her kids are now in private school, and her mission transformed. She believes parents don't have enough control over their kids' education, and she's hell-bent on changing that. Bridget reminded us of another group of moms. Their fight was different, but they shared a common enemy, government overreach. I, I want to I, I ask you something. My, my cassette is kind of sensitive because of the distance. Would it be okay if you sat here? Yeah. Okay, that way I can hear you a little bit better. That's Michelle Nickerson. Nowadays, she's a professor of history at Loyola University in Chicago. But the tape you're hearing, that's her in the 1990s. She was interviewing several women for her dissertation. How would you describe the role that women played in the Republican Party or in the conservative movement, if you were to reflect on that? As we've discussed before, they had more time mm-hmm. to give to it and, uh, and got concerned about our country. Uh-huh. And at that time, we, we were very anti-communist. Right, right. Because we didn't want... We didn't want to see the world taken over and think, as a mother, you are concerned about your children's future. Mm-hmm. You know, you care about your own future, but you care more about your families coming along. And you, you want them to have the freedom that we've had under our Constitution. Right. And, uh, and that's Jane Crosby. In the 1950s, she was involved in the anti-communist movement. Today on Bedrock USA, we're going back in time. We're going to meet the women who came before Bridget, because Bridget is not the first conservative mother to fight back against a changing American education. And it all begins in the 1950s, in Southern California. A group of conservative mothers were taking action. They were fighting what they believed was the infiltration of communism into their kids' schools. When people think about this era, McCarthyism might come to mind, and the witch hunt he led. McCarthy fanned the fear that there were spies among us working for the Soviets. But Michelle Nickerson, she discovered another chapter of the fight against communism. Moms like Jane Crosby were looking around their kids' schools, and they didn't like what they were seeing. A cultural shift was on the rise, and they feared for their kids. 
there were these new guidance counselors, and they kept referring to this new thing called mental health. And then there was a new class, sex education. And then there was the biggest shift of all, the civil rights movement. And Jane Crosby and these moms, they deemed it all communistic. Things were changing fast, and this group of conservative mothers wanted to stop it. We called up Michelle Nickerson because she wrote her dissertation on the origins of this movement, and she told us a story. It all began with a new bill, a proposal to provide mental health services to people in Alaska. This was during the 1950s. Alaskans who needed help had no resources where they lived. They had to travel thousands of miles to clinics in places like Oregon, the nearest spot with services. And somehow, a bunch of housewives in Southern California caught wind of the bill including Jane Crosby. As a graduate student, Michelle moved to Pasadena and spent a year combing through local archives. She had to sift through thousands of pages of records left behind by government officials. She also dove deep into the files of conservative groups, of which there were dozens. Finally, after all that research, several of the mothers agreed to meet with her in person. Many still lived in the area. Most of them were in their 70s and 80s by then. Their kids were all grown up. She taped each conversation. In one of her interviews, she asked Jane Crosby about her activism. Have you been involved in Republican volunteer organizations before that? I've always been involved, but but one thing also that got me going Mm -hmm. was uh, I was in PTA with the schools, and we went to a meeting downtown Los Angeles, and they had all this group dynamics, and they had a lot of real shady... uh, uh, to me, at that time, uh, left-wing communist-type uh, speakers. Mm-hmm. And I got so upset about it that I wrote a letter to the Times or to the paper. I thought maybe it was the Star News, I'm not sure which. But mm-hmm. I wrote a letter, and they were promoting mental health. Oh, I was going to get everybody going on that. And uh, I started to look into that, and... We had a meeting at the junior high school and had, had two speakers come, and we, we, we stirred up a real hornet's nest. This around the time, do you remember the Alaska Mental Health Bill? Yeah, that was, that was part of the whole thing we were upset about. Oh, okay. At the time. Wow. And uh, uh, so then I got, I got into a real controversy with my PTA because I said, I don't want you speaking for me. So what upset you about the mental health legislation? What was it? I, you know, I don't remember all of that, uh, but it just seemed like there was, just, there was just a lot going on that didn't, it just smelled to me. Okay. And I wanted to find out more about it. Uh-huh. And so I started to listen. We'll be back after the break. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm gonna talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic, and then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. 
Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, the smell of a conspiracy theory. Jane Crosby was one of hundreds of Republican women who fought against that Alaskan bill. Here's Michelle again. We caught up with her over Zoom and asked her about her research. I am author of the book Mothers of Conservatism, Women in the Postwar Right. The more research I did into this one conspiracy theory, the more that I learned that it had actually nothing to do about Alaska or Alaskans, but everything to do with right-wing housewives in Southern California who developed this idea that the Alaska Mental Health Bill of 1956 was not meant to establish a mental health facility in Alaska as it purported to be, but they uh, were convinced that it was an attempt to establish a gulag in Alaska, like a Russian-style prison camp It's not like they thought it would be a literal gulag, but more that it would be a place where the government could brainwash local residents. Brainwashing was something these women were especially concerned about, and they were worried it was going to happen to their kids in school, even though there was no evidence of that happening. Jane reminded us of Bridget in one main way. They were both alarmed by the long arm of government, fearful for their kids and politically driven for the cause, and Michelle agreed with this comparison. We were curious about Jane. Who was she? We asked Michelle to paint us a picture. So she was a trim, uh, I would say 70-something-year-old woman, well-dressed. She loved to wear red, white, and blue. She had blonde hair. I I imagine she got her hair set probably pretty often. Very, you know, well-put-together, tidy. She had two children, boys, And she became concerned about communism infiltrating the South Pasadena school system. She was concerned that progressives were trying to brainwash children. And so she became involved in the Parent Teachers Association, which she came to regard as being dubious and themselves dangerous. She, she thought the PTA was too progressive and in and of itself a, a sinister organization. Michelle told us about how Jane was part of a large group of women, right-wing activists who belonged to various Republican groups. They did a lot of research and wrote tons of newsletters. 
Then they'd send a copy to every mom they knew. And then those moms would pass them along and so on. And soon information in Pasadena, California, was making its way to Scarsdale, New York. A slow form of Twitter and Facebook, really. Their goal? Michelle told us they were trying to root out superintendents, principals, and teachers who they deemed communistic. And once they found them, they'd try to get them fired. Sometimes they succeeded. And the crime for these superintendents, principals, and teachers? These are the educators who passed measures to desegregate schools. These were the principals who held interracial school dances. These are the teachers who taught progressive curricula, like on sex education. Basically, Michelle says, they were the progressives of their time. Women thought that this was something they had the time and the attention to do, and they thought that men really didn't, that men were so busy that they they couldn't possibly have uh, enough patience to go through legislation and find the things that they could find. Those husbands, they had no patience to research like their wives. And those wives, they believed they were performing an act of public service. But there was one thing we were particularly curious about. Why was even the concept of mental health so threatening? Why stop a clinic in Alaska, which was thousands of miles away from being built? We asked Michelle about it. So you get to the 1950s and mental health becomes a a medical movement, like a public health movement. So you're seeing the influence of psychiatrists and psychologists in American society like never before, and all this talk of brainwashing. And so, you you know, people put two and two together and came to feel like, oh, that's what these psychologists are trying to do. They're trying to brainwash us. At that time, psychoanalysis was hugely popular, but it wasn't for everyone. The idea that you could treat your mind, fix it like a broken arm, it sounded like quackery to some, like manipulation. But here's the thing. Mental health, first of all, wasn't really even in schools. They were worried about a nation drifting further to the left and government growing increasingly powerful to the point where it instituted socialism in the United States. An example would be, say, the county of Los Angeles taking more tax money to establish like leftist curriculum in high schools or grade schools to further brainwash children. So what Michelle is saying is that pushing back against these progressive ideals was to push back against what they saw as government overreach and the potential for educators to turn their children into communists. So what one of the things that they deemed communistic was the Pasadena school superintendent eliminating segregationist measures that were in place. So any any kind of mixing of races or civil rights reform, they deemed that to be dangerous and communistic because it involved what they would describe as the heavy hand of the state legislation, like the Civil Rights Act, to them was heavy handed. They saw the entire civil rights movement as being started, fomented by communists. Okay, so yeah, that's a lot to take in. It turns out that these conservative moms believed the civil rights movement was originated by communists. And this just isn't true. They did not see it 
as having originated in the black community. They saw uh, civil rights activism and the various like race riots that were happening around them as being civil unrest that was fomented by communists. And so when they criticized the civil rights movement, they were very careful to say, and they truly believe this, that they weren't racist, that this had nothing to do with their racial beliefs. They saw themselves as colorblind and fervently believed that it was leftists, white leftists, who started all of this activity. And so their opposition to communism was in large part opposition to desegregation, to affirmative action, and similar policies. This kind of opposition sounded familiar. Conservatives rising up against policies put in place by an overreaching arm of government. That's why this group of women reminded us of Bridget and many conservative parents today. And to be very clear, we don't mean in the pushing back against desegregation or the addition of guidance counselors in schools, but rather the disdain for what they believed was the government taking a step too far into their families' lives. We asked Michelle about this through line. Well, what strikes me is um, I see a similar defensiveness and a huge reaction whenever you bring attention to uh, structural racism or racist either language to to the attention of people on the right there is this very swift rebuke, like, how dare you call me racist? I'm not racist. I don't see color. To me, it's it's the same thing that was happening in the 1950s and 60s, where it's a way for them to try and eliminate anti-racist pedagogy from their schools. The banning of certain books, I think they truly believe that these books are dangerous or over-sexualized or, you know, they see it as overly violent. And they are, like, deliberately missing the point about how this literature and this curricula is meant to stop racism. It's meant to call attention to racism in all aspects of American life. Jane and the army of conservative mothers said they were fighting against communism, but in reality, they were pushing back against social change. And they lost, because Brown versus the Board of Education happened, desegregation happened, the Civil Rights Act was passed, the sexual revolution happened. We'll be back after the break. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Michelle walked us through the anti-communism movement, but there was another group, again, mostly mothers, and they were fighting another fight, a fight against sex education in the 1960s. There are disadvantages to going steady. Going steady? Yes, I guess I have been going steady with Jeff. We never talked about it, but it's not serious. Really, it isn't. Why? I hope Jeff doesn't feel that he has the right to uh, take liberties. Oh, mother. We decided to learn more, and we reached out to another historian. Samantha went to meet her in person at the new school in Manhattan. Maybe um, you could take this moment to say, um, introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Natalia Melman Petrozella. I'm a historian and I'm the author of Classroom Wars, Language, Sex and the Making of Modern Political Culture. So Classroom Wars is a book about the development of and fights over curriculum uh, in the 1960s and 70s, specifically about sex education and about bilingual education. Oh, man. Sex ed. It was controversial back in the day, and it's still controversial. These days, one of the biggest fights being put up by Bridget and other conservative parents falls under the umbrella of sex ed. Mostly it's to do with gender identity. In both cases, worries about government overreach are at the root of it all. We asked Natalia to walk us through her research. I'm so happy this is good for anything. (laughs) So I'm standing in front of this big filing cabinet. It's like six files. It's like six drawers deep. It's almost as tall as me. So like almost five, five. And these are all the files that I use to write my dissertation and then my first book. So yeah, a lot of letters to the editor to see what people were thinking about, you know, the original Twitter. It turns out the teaching of sex education has been around since World War I. Back then, it was geared towards boys going off to war. It's very much tied up with this thing called the social hygiene movement. So social hygiene people are very invested in a curriculum that teaches kids how to manage their bodies and discipline their bodies. Well, Sue, where are you? In my room, Don. Joe called. He said he'd be a little late. Say, do you look smooth? Why, thank you, sir. You look mighty elegant yourself, if I may say so. Yes, indeed. Both Don and Sue look like the kind of people you'd like to know, don't they? Of course, right now, they're dressed for their Friday dates. But don't you have the feeling that they're always well-groomed? Yes, and that's no accident. 
For Don and Sue, the question, how do I look, depends on good grooming habits. Health, posture, cleanliness, and neatness, plus a daily routine of little finishing touches is everything from like the physical education movement to, um, you know, education about sexual continence, you know, not being promiscuous to things about like how to wash your hands appropriately and like clean your teeth. It's really about managing your body. The sexuality part of this becomes much more central as World War I kicks up because there's all of this fear of venereal disease. And so the idea is that you have to teach kids who might go off to war, boys, um, to, you know, not have sex with these loose women. And there's a lot of um, fear mongering around this. I mean, some of it's real. You will get very sick if you get syphilis. But, you know, they show pictures of children born with syphilis, like with their faces all deformed. And they, it's very morally laden of like, you know, do you want children like this? And what about the girls? For girls, the emphasis is really like, I'm not ruining your virginity, <laughs> like telling you enough so that you don't get carried away or do heavy petting and, you know, ruin your chances at having a nice husband who never would want a girl who's used up in the way that, um, that, that would happen to you if you, you know, went too far with a boy. But in the 1950s, there's this movement called the Life Adjustment Education Movement, a real like mouthful. And the idea there was that schools should be teaching kids of all levels to like adjust to society and live in the world. So there was a lot of non-academic instruction there. Like, and a lot of it was really marriage education. I mean, that's what they called it. Like it was preparing um, boys and girls for marriage. I'll bet we could get some advice from the marriage counselor over at the church. He teaches a course in marriage and family living at the college. My folks don't understand the way I feel. Do you think you can help us get married? Might well ask yourself some questions before you get too serious about marriage. What do you mean? What sort of questions? Well, questions for Cupid. You might say he should ask them before he fires those arrows. We call this Cupid's checklist. First, do you have similar backgrounds, similar bases for your ideals and standards? Up until then, everything was pretty vanilla. Very much about no sex outside of marriage. But then the 60s happened. But and this is a really big deal because you have this openness to kind of have some non-academic uh, concepts that are being taught in schools. But now you have like the sexual revolution happening and feminism happening and later gay liberation happening and also the civil rights movement and all these things are happening. And um, so a new crop of sex educators thinks, well, what do we do now? And what I think is so important, and I can't say it loudly enough, and I think is often overlooked, is that a lot of the sex educators in this period who kind of revamp curriculum and come up with new curriculum, they are fundamentally very moderate people. So what does that mean to be moderate in the teaching of sex ed? Like they teach that homosexuality is a sickness, right? They teach that heterosexual marriage is the appropriate culmination of any relationship. They don't really depart at all from the idea that girls who do too much petting are slutty and undesirable. Like it really is pretty conservative, the kind of choices that they're leading kids to make. So according to Natalia, even acknowledging homosexuality as an illness was considered progressive because it was acknowledging its very existence. So it's like one step forward, but two steps back. And the conservatives, they didn't like it at all. 
But that gets picked up by right-wing opponents to this stuff. And they're like, what? They are teaching our kids to be independent agents of our family, of our church, to just choose and to do whatever they want. The sort of permissiveness of, you know, moral relativism is rampant in our schools and it's called sex education. Sex education becomes the new dirty term in schools. It handily sums up what they're fighting against. Studying this stuff historically, I think it's pretty clear that in some ways there are these examples of kind of conservatives winning, right? They get the curriculum stamped out. They like get the teacher who advanced um, sex ed fired. Like there are definitely examples of that. On the other hand, what you do see, I think, is a more graduate sort of forward march of progressive attitudes into the classroom. Like America is only becoming more diverse of a place. And with that, like the kind of pedagogical projects which are on the table have kind of evolved to to reflect that. And that includes the introduction of how homosexuality is taught in schools. And it didn't start off in a good place. Natalia's research turned up some student evaluations. One's from a sex ed class. There's an example I often choose where studying this case in Anaheim, where I got to look at the student evaluations of a course. And this was evaluations of a course, which was seen to be like the most progressive in the country, really. What was the course? The course, it was called Senior Problems, but it was within this family life and sex education program. So this was like senior year. So theoretically, this should be like the most open content that, you know, the most sort of like unrestrained discussion of sexuality. And one of the letters in there from us, or one of the evaluations from a student said, you know, I'm so happy we talked about homosexuality in this class, because if we didn't, I wouldn't know it was an illness and I wouldn't be able to help these people. Yeah. And that really stuck with me because you can tell that it was a new thing to talk about homosexuality at all. This was like this unspoken thing. And probably it was a new thing to talk about it clinically as opposed to speaking about it purely in, as a moral failure or like, a you know, in, a, a sin. On the other hand, can you imagine a class today speaking in precisely those terms and being seen as progressive and liberal? Absolutely not. That was 1968. Within a few years, I saw in tracking the curricula in California that Whereas that had been so, so controversial. A few years later, the letters of complaint to the state superintendent were like, well, you had a couple of homosexual speakers this year. Maybe we could also bring in like a single woman. Like they were much more sort of accepting of a kind of, you know, diversity of kind of human experience. Standing here in 2023, it's kind of crazy to think that teaching homosexuality as an illness is considered progress. Or to imagine having a single woman as a speaker represents the diversity of human experience. But the research Natalia uncovered shows that progress. And though it starts in a really dark place, it's the first rung of a long ladder. And I'm skipping over some things, but to get us to where we are today, where you have another moment of tremendous unrest around gender, around sexuality, around race, and you have schools that actually are doing some of the most progressive stuff in this regard, and again, become, for that reason, a target of folks who don't like that at all. And folks who feel like I'm seeing all this stuff and it's, I see it online and I see it in the movies and I see it in, maybe no one reads magazines anymore, but I'm seeing this, you know, 
like these social changes in the ethos, whether it's people protesting or what I'm reading, et cetera. And it feels so hard to pinpoint and so hard to fight, but oh my God, they're reading how to be an anti-racist in school. And that's something I can grab onto. And so I'm going to fight against it. And now um, that very much echoes what we saw in the 60s and 70s. But one thing that I would think is, I, I do think is really different, is that a lot of those calls come with like, let's shut it down completely. Michelle and Natalia helped us understand a lot. Mostly they taught us how the conservative women who came before Bridget were like-minded to mothers today. Both groups have a fear of government overreach. When Bridget says she's fighting for parental rights, she's using it as an umbrella term. What she means is parents should have ultimate control, the ability to reject anything that doesn't fall under their own conservative value system even if that means banning books or eliminating support groups for LGBTQ youth. So when it comes down to these emotional topics, I know where I stand as a human being. I know, I know what my journey is. I know that there is no hate. There is nothing about me that is seeking to vilify or make any subpopulation feel less than anyone else because that is not my belief. I where I stand very strong on is, again, we go back to the principles that a government is overreaching and, and creating barriers for families. And that unfortunately is very much targeted into the LGBTQ and it's not, and, and what I could benefit about. Next time on Bedrock USA for our final episode in our mini series, we dig in with Bridget. This episode was reported, produced, and hosted by us, Samantha Story and Kathleen Quillian. Original music and scoring by Zachary Walter and audio engineering by Blake Maples. Bedrock USA is edited by Jennifer Sondag, head of Bloomberg City Lab. Additional editing help by Nicole Flato and Victor Iveas. Special thanks to Michelle Nickerson and Natalia Melman-Petrella. If you want to dig deeper, Michelle's book is The Mothers of Conservatism, Women and the Post-War Right, and Natalia's book is Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture. We'd also like to thank the Center for Oral and Public History at the California State University at Fullerton for giving us access to Michelle's original tapes. And if you like any of the clips you've heard, there's a treasure trove of those historical videos on YouTube. Just search Cornet Videos. That's C-O-R-O-N-E-T. Bedrock USA is a production of Bloomberg City Lab and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.